You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. The Bible teaches that bad news in our world can become good news in our soul. And good news in our soul can become good news in the world. This is what the Apostle Paul is arguing in our text today, which is in uh, the book of Romans. Paul, uh, in what is the most elegant, articulate, thorough exposition of the good news of Jesus Christ, the book of Romans, gives us four chapters before he ever uses the word love, before he ever speaks once of the love of God. But when he comes to chapter 5, and begins to address himself to the problem of human suffering, there, there he speaks of the love of God. Because it's in the midst of the experience of suffering and trouble in life that we can also experience the love of God most profoundly. In those first four chapters, what the Apostle Paul has done is argued for the peace of God, that we can be at peace with God, reconciled to him. He's discussed the problem of sin He's discussed the, the solution of Jesus Christ, who is God come to die on the cross for that sin. And then he speaks of the response that God requires of us, and that is faith. But it's not until he comes to chapter 5, the first five verses, that he addresses himself to how peace with God actually leads to hope. How I could be reconciled with God, and because of that, have hope in the world. It's not an automatic thing. This kind of spiritual comfort that we feel knowing that we belong to God doesn't necessarily bring fearless hope in the world except through the operation of God's grace in the midst of of suffering. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Romans 5 and uh, read together Romans 5, 1 through 5. You'll find that on page 917 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand and let's read this text together. We're reading Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. After we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. There is a process here by which God turns peace into hope in our lives. There's a dynamic, and I want to look at that dynamic in three different ways. First, I would like to show you what the process looks like from God's perspective, a view from behind the wall, so to speak. Next, I'd like to look together at what that process looks like from our perspective as we journey through it. And then finally, 
would like to use Abraham as a bit of a test case to see how that process uh, obtains in his life. So first, what God sees, the view behind the wall. It's this, it's that peace with God becomes hope in the world as God pours love into troubled hearts. It's God pours love into troubled hearts. But we see that here in verse 5. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes when I face trouble, I begin to ask myself the question, does God love me? Things aren't going the way they should go. But ironically, the followers of Jesus Christ in the early church seem to know exactly the opposite, that it was precisely because they came into trouble that God loved them. It was somehow an evidence, the suffering or the pain in their lives was an evidence of God's care and provision for them. This is so countercultural. We'll have to look more carefully at that in our second point. But first of all, just noticing that God pours out love into our hearts uh, through trouble. This uh, verb, poured out, is in a particular tense in Greek that we call a perfect tense. And what that tense suggests is something that happens at a single point in time that has a continuing or an ongoing effect. And so we see what that single point of time is when God poured out his love for us in verse 8. Paul, the apostle, is so very clear. He says, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, this is when God poured out his love for the world, most clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a historical event. The Son of God gave his life for sinners. And you need no other evidence of God's love for you, Paul argues, than just to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. There he hangs for you and for me. He gives his life so that you could live. He loves you. But that historic event, which happened only once, has a kind of an ongoing effect in the life of his followers. It's a kind of a perpetual dynamic that works out in his life that Paul wants to call a pouring out of love. And that dynamic works through the power of the Holy Spirit. I went uh, camping last weekend with my family down around Mount Rainier, and uh, I found myself disappointed. Not so much by the experience of camping, or certainly not Mount Rainier, which we didn't see, actually. Um, (laughs) Found myself disappointed by the firewood that we used. You know, camping in Southern California is different than camping in uh, the Northwest. And I think next time I go back to California, I'm going to bring some dry kindling back because I didn't find anything at all that was dry. And I pride myself on my moderate at best uh, wilderness skill, and I'm trying to train my kids. And so I explained to them, look, you use the little sticks and the bigger sticks. You make this kind of TP pile just such, and then you light the the bottom part on the windward section, and out it goes. And there... And I said, well, you you struck the match wrong. Let me take it. You know, and I take it and smolders for a little bit and out it goes. You know, wow, the wood is all wet. And uh, in some cases, it was actually raining as we tried to light it. (laughs) And we went through half the box of matches and I began to get a little nervous because we were there for a couple of days. So I walked back over to uh, my supplies and I pulled out a thin cylinder of white gas. And uh, the kids weren't looking. I dumped it all over this thing. 
made sure there were no fumes, closed the thing, and said, this is the way you do it, Will. You light it like this. And the thing burst into four feet of flame. Well, our lives are all wet. Just as we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we're ready to believe that he is the hope for our lives and the world, that little spark is lit under the conditions of suffering, pain, trouble, and out it goes with nothing but a wisp of smoke remaining. Well, John Bunyan gives us a very interesting perspective behind the wall. He lets us see what I think the Apostle Paul is getting at, how God pours his love into our lives in the midst of of suffering. And, And just to remind you that this man, Christian, in the story Pilgrim's Progress, which was written in 1678, uh, in a day that was bereft of many of the conveniences and insulations we as Americans enjoy, protecting ourselves from an experience of suffering, Bunyan describes the life of a Christian as a journey through suffering, the trouble we face. He starts at the city of destruction. He's headed toward the celestial city, but along the journey, he's got to go through what he calls the valley of humiliation. The footing is bad. He slips. He falls. At the bottom of the valley, he encounters this fiend called Apollyon who battles with him. And we'll, we'll look at that later. After the valley of humiliation, which he barely survives, he finds he's in the valley of the shadow of death. And this place that is dark and misty as he travels, puts voices, dark voices in his head. He hears things and he loses track of whether those are his own thoughts or satanic whispers. Making it through that valley, he finds he loses his way and is in a a, a grassy field camping out one night only to discover that the field belongs to the giant called Despair who sweeps him up and takes him to the, uh, the castle, the Doubting Castle, it's called, and locks him away amid the bones of other pilgrims. The journey we travel is a journey through trouble. But to prepare him for that journey, way back at the house of the interpreter, he's given a glimpse He's he's given a a perspective that you and I don't often have. I want to read this to you. John Bunyan says, Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where there was a fire burning against a wall. And one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the Father, fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason of that. So he had him about to the back side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand of the which he did also continually cast but secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. By the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, 
This is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. On the other side of the wall, behind your troubles, there stands a Savior, Jesus Christ, who through a hole in the wall pours oil constantly on the fire of your faith to bring it to life despite the dousing that life throws upon that flame. That's the view behind the wall. Well, what does it look like from our perspective? I mean, as surely as God is pouring love into our lives through our troubles and tribulations, the Apostle Paul has a different perspective. This man suffered. And indeed, he does. He sees, uh, by the inspiration of the the Spirit, the pouring of God's love in a way that we just don't see it. When trouble and pain comes into our life, whether it be a small thing like the scratch I got reaching into the refrigerator uh, this morning to try to fix the thing that had broken last night or the... Uh, more solemn moments of our lives when we sit by a beloved one's hospice bed and are troubled by their murmurings. John Updike passed away in January, as you may know, and he, his poems, the final poems, were collected together in a book called Endpoint. They were, uh, some of them were published in The New Yorker in March. And he describes the, the face of of suffering that so many of us see in an MRI tube. It's one of his last poems. Updike writes, Benign, big, blonde machine, beyond all price, it swallows us up and slowly spits us out, half deafened and our blood still died. All this to mask the simple, dismal fact that we decay and find our term of life is fixed. This giant governance, a mammoth toy, distracts us for the daytime, but the night brings back the quiet and the solemn dark. But the Apostle Paul says, yes, it's dark, but I want to tell you that I have found a life that learns to rejoice in the midst of our pain. He says, we boast not only in hope, but we also boast in our sufferings. He's no masochist. The Bible teaches that the discipline is always seems painful, Hebrews 12, 11, rather than pleasant at the time. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pain is pain. Dark is dark. We suffer. And we don't rejoice in that. But we do rejoice in the work that God can do as he pours his love into our lives in the midst of that pain. There's a dynamic that Paul wants us to be very clear about. And the dynamic is... Uh, so important, but also so frequently missed in the midst of our pain that the Bible gives it to us three times. In James 1 and 2, James writes, My brothers and sisters, whatever you face, trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Or Peter writes, in 1 Peter 1.6, in this suffering, you rejoice, even if for now a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
The writer of Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. He disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. Wow, it's parental love. Now, but you and I can't see that. There's no implication that we can look at the pain in our lives and know exactly what it's doing in our lives. That's obscure. That's business behind the wall. But what it looks like on this side of the wall is a three-step dynamic. Paul gives it to us in verses 3 and 4. In suffering, he produces endurance, one, character, two, and then hope, three. Let's look at that dynamic. What is endurance? Endurance is holding on to the promises of God in the midst of trouble. Holding the promises. The Greek word there is hupomene. And I think you're familiar with this word. It's a compound word that brings together two words, meaning to remain by, to stand on, to stick with it. So this is exactly the kind of thing uh, that we should do in the midst of trials, but it's exactly the, the thing that we don't want to do. Think of a, a marathon runner training for yesterday's race out there. Uh, she starts off in a training run, a long run, and, and, and uh, she begins to sweat and the pulse races and feel very uncomfortable. She uh, struggles. That's exactly the moment when she wants to take her intention to run the marathon and say, forget it, I'm not standing by that. I'm going to give it up. She does that, she'll never develop endurance. And so endurance uh, is the result of suffering. Luke 8, Jesus tells the parable of the seeds thrown in various soils. One falls on the rock, it can't root itself, and so as it grows up, quickly it's choked out by the suffering. The other one uh, grows in, in the soil, is rooted, and the promise of God bears fruit because uh, it has been held fast, Jesus tells us. Held with endurance, the same word. Without trouble, there's no endurance. Well, the second word is character. If we have endurance, we can also have character. In fact, endurance produces character, the apostle writes. Maybe a better word for character, a better translation of this word is someone who's approved because they're tested. Character is the outcome here in this sense of testing. And so Peter would use the image of gold, which is one of the heaviest metals. When you heat it up, you boil it. The impurities float to the surface and the gold sinks down. You can skim off that which is not gold. And in the same way, if we hold on to the promises of God long enough to have endurance, then God can work out this process of testing and approving to, to bring forth the character that comes from the grace of God. He can skim off everything that is not from his grace. Everything that is not our eternal destiny. Everything that is not of eternal value in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of traveling the city uh, with Alan Belton, Mike McCormick, Hunnelman, and seeing uh, the, the number of places that UPC is engaged in transforming the city in the name of Jesus Christ. Went from one mission agency to the next. And I went to New Horizons. And, you know, they, they work with troubled teenagers who are on the streets. And one of the youth workers there said a, an amazing thing, I thought. He said, you know what we're doing is we're creating space for these kids in which they can understand who they really are, their true selves, 
and the grace of Jesus Christ are coming out here. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what suffering does in our lives? It's a character that Paul's writing about. Without endurance, we can't have character. And without character, we cannot have hope. Because hope is the expectation that the promise of God will transform not only our lives, but the world in which we live. The word hope in the Bible speaks not of wishful thinking or something that I, I wish, but I'm not really sure will happen. It's, the word literally means expectation. Expectation of something that's good. There is no uncertainty in hope. It just knows that the grace of Jesus Christ is going to out and transform all. That's what hope is. And it belongs to people who have begun to see the process of testing in their own lives. They've begun to see the refining fires bring forth something beautiful in them. The greatest exposition of hope that we have in the book of Romans, I think, comes a few chapters later in, in Romans 8, right? And in Romans 8, Paul begins by saying, the Spirit of God is doing something inside of us that's helping us to know what family we belong to. And we cry out, Abba, Father. We realize, I'm a daughter. I am a son of the living God. But also, we look and scan the horizon and we see a world that is deeply troubled. A creation, in fact, that's moaning in futility. And those of us who have seen our own identity birthed in Christ know what that means. We know that all of creation is yearning in childbirth. It's the image. Because we have become children, we see that the whole, the whole of creation now, under Jesus Christ, is giving birth. And that's what the suffering of the world is about now. It's the way in which Jesus Christ is using its pain to bring forth new creation, new life. That's what the dynamic looks like on our side of, of the wall. It looks like endurance, it looks like developing character, and it looks like coming into hope. Finally, I want to touch on what the pouring of love into a troubled heart looks like in a life, a case study, and that's Abraham. Abraham was, for Paul, in chapter 4, an example of faith. But as you read towards the end of the chapter, you see that begins to move into a discussion and a celebration of Abraham's hope. Abraham hoped against hope, Paul writes. Have you ever heard that expression before, hoping against hope? This is where it comes from. You might ask yourself, what does that mean? Well, to understand that, you need to see how God pours love into Abraham's life. Abram, as he was born, Abram, suffered. He had trouble. He was a pagan. His brother dies young. He's married to a woman who cannot have a child. He experiences endurance in the midst of that one day when God comes to him and gives him a promise and says, Abram, you're going to be a father. You're going to be a father to change the world. And, and yet you must go. Leave behind. The process of childbirth in your life and in this creation requires you to go forth to experience a journey. And he leaves behind all that was familiar to him, his ancestral home, his extended family. And he goes. And bit by bit, he faces the trouble of loss. That which was familiar, that which shapes his understanding of who he is, these things are left behind on the road as he travels hundreds of miles across Mesopotamia, across Palestine, into Africa through Egypt and back. Suffering, endurance, and then character or testing. 
I think the greatest test in the life of Abraham is that moment that actually the writer of Genesis describes as a test. It's that moment on Mount Moriah when God has called Abram to do the unthinkable. He has said that your son will be executed and you will be the executioner. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot read this text. There is no text in the whole Bible that is more uh, disturbing to me than that text in Genesis. The idea that Abraham would take a knife and sacrifice his son. This was a pagan notion. It was not done ever uh, sanctioned by God in the, in the Bible. And yet God seems to command this. This must be the darkest of all moments in Abraham's life. This must be the darkest night, the greatest suffering that he could ever imagine enduring. And yet, Eugene Peterson, in his book, The Jesus Way, asks a very interesting question about this narrative. He asks the question, why is it that as the story is actually told in Genesis, there's no hint uh, of concern in Abraham or Isaac? It's just this kind of regular day, another day in the life of Abraham. It's as though they're going up Mount Moriah to have a picnic, to spread a a blanket and eat watermelon together. There's no anxiety. There's no fear. There's no grief. There's no mourning represented in the least bit in the spare Hebrew narrative. And how is it that when God seizes the the knife with the voice saying, Abram, stop, and and they find a, a ram in the thicket, and this turns out to be the offering that God intends, how is it that there's no sense of surprise or relief or celebration that we got through this trial? I think it's because of hope against hope. It's because through the journey of suffering and trials in Abraham's life, he has become who God wants him to be. It was not a perfect journey, but he struggled with fear in Egypt, conflict with Lot, battles with kings, the temptation of wealth, temptations of infidelity and infertility. Abraham, through failure, through success, is beginning to see the grace of God in his life. And that gives him hope. Hope against hope. So that as he goes up there, He has faith in the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist, as Paul says. There's a a hope of the world that says you're in great trouble and it leads to despair, but there's a hope of grace in one's life that says the promises of God can overcome even everything that you can see in this crisis. There's a hope of darkness. There's a hope of light. There's a hope of the cross, excuse me, a hope of the cross or expectation that the cross of Jesus Christ spells the end, our Savior crucified and dead. Then there is a hope of the empty tomb in the garden. The expectation now that Jesus Christ is transforming all, that he is a revolutionary. And that when we hear him promise to us something that seems so uncertain, even in the midst of darkness, he will make it happen. He will bring good out of bad. So this is how the peace with God becomes hope in the world. God pours his love into a troubled heart. You can have peace in an instant, peace with God, simply coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe, Billy Graham, you hear a sermon. Maybe you see a sunset and the gospel just comes into clear perspective for you. Perhaps you're reading the Bible and one day you realize, yes, Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. You can have peace with God instantly. But hope, friends, hope is a process 
It's a cumulative process, and it requires trouble to do its work in our life. We've sent many ministerial candidates, hundreds of them from UPC over the years. Uh, One of them, Jeff Maxine, was uh, being interviewed by our elders session uh, this week. And uh, the elders asked, tell us some of the spiritual disciplines that nourish your faith. And one of the he mentioned was riding his bicycle. You know, I think it was probably getting exercise and also good stewardship of the earth. But he did admit that uh, he was doing it because his car had broken down. Um, And I thought, yeah, that's the spiritual discipline. Not the one that we invent for ourselves, but the one that God has laid before us. The particular trouble, the particular crisis that he has us in at the moment. I think the Velveteen Rabbit says it best. I'm going to close with these words. The story of a stuffed animal who knows that only through a process of suffering can he become real. He asked this question of a uh, skin horse, a toy. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things like that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? No, real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or who have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, may we be people who understand. People who, with the eyes of faith, aided by the revelation of your word, can look behind the wall and know that in the midst of every crisis, you are there pouring your grace pouring your love into our lives, inviting us to take advantage of this crisis to be remade, to become real, to know that there is hope for us, and because there's hope for us, there is hope for this whole creation, and Jesus is the one who's doing it. So we pray it in his name. Amen. For more UPC audio, or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.